Children's Church. Uh, why don't we all take our Bibles and open up to Romans uh, chapter 1 this morning. Uh, we've been working through Romans chapter 1, and we're going to, Lord willing, finish the chapter. Uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 26 and reading down through uh, verse 32. Listen then uh, to the word of God. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise came, uh, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice such things. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless your word today, that you would instruct us and guide us and correct us and uh, cause us to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would recognize the sinfulness of sin, the sin that we ourselves also participated in, in our rebellion against you. We thank you for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, which makes salvation possible. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your love in all things, for showing us our sinfulness, but not only showing us it, but redeeming us from it. Oh, Lord, even as some of these words are difficult and tough to wrestle with this morning, we pray that you would just send your spirit before us and that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. We're in a passage of scripture this morning that can be uh, honestly quite a, a tough passage uh, to work through. It's very frank. It's it's very bold. It's it's rather confrontational. And sometimes that's the way uh, the word of God needs to be in our hearts and in our lives. And we shouldn't shy away from that. I trust that that most of you know me well enough now to know we regularly just work through passages of Scripture and we don't try to come to them uh, with some sort of agenda picking out this or that verse to harp on or single out certain things, but rather we seek to walk through the whole counsel of God. And so we've been walking through the book of Romans. And I think it's important to point out that in the book of Romans, Paul is driving towards the greatness of God. He's getting at the gospel and what God has done. And in this section, this larger section that runs from uh, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way into chapter 3, verse 2, Paul is building the case of, of demonstrating to us what sin entails. And so he's telling us things that we don't always like to hear, but he's doing this with an eye towards the gospel. He's doing this with an eye towards Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Christ saves us from. And, and the, the old cliche that we kind of use, which, which is somewhat accurate, is you have to know the bad news to see the good news as truly good. We don't like hearing the bad news that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But until we lay some of that picture, we aren't going to understand just how great the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is. Every single person born into this world, except for the Lord Jesus, is born a sinner. 
And we need to understand sin so that we might come before the Lord Jesus Christ and ask forgiveness of sins for his work, his death and resurrection that pays the penalty for our sins. Our main point this morning is this. When people reject God, God hands them over to their sinful desires. When people reject God, God hands them over. God gives people up. He allows them to do what they want to do. This is, in a sense, as this passage moves, it is, it is man running amok. It is human beings getting the fullness of what they want in their rebellion against God. And part of this is God When people have rejected the knowledge of God, God hands them over and allows them to do those things which they ought not to do, which they so desperately want to do. So first this morning, we have rejected God and he hands us over to what we desire. I want to back up here in the passage and just very briefly walk you through some of these verses. We know God By virtue of being made in his image and seeing him, his power displayed in creation, we know God, but we suppress the truth. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is being is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness who uh, excuse me, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we made the case last week that it is we are confronted with who God is. And rather than accepting it, we push it down. We suppress it. We, we sweep it under the rug and hold it down under there and say, I don't want to know these things. I don't want God. And then our hearts become foolish and darkened as we exchange the glory of God for the glory of idols. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we take this knowledge of God, we suppress it. And instead of taking it and saying, God, you are awesome. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to honor you. We say, I don't want this. And out of that, we become foolish in our thinking. It's, it's sort of like staring the truth right in the face and saying, I don't want the truth. I want, as the buzzword is now, alternative facts. I don't want to praise God. I want to swap that out for something else. It's, it's, it's like having this wonderful steak in front of you and throwing it away and say, I want to change that out for, for something I'm going to pull out of the dumpster. It's foolish. It's silly. It darkens our heart. And so, verses 23, 24, and 25, we exchange the glory of uh, God and His truth for the glory of idols and lies. And we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave us up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creator rather than the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, again, as I've noted, the flow of the passage, if you flip over to Romans chapter three, go to Romans chapter three, verse nine. Romans chapter three, Paul is driving towards the universality of sin. In other words, Paul is not using these verses and neither should we simply to harp on one particular sin but to cover the totality of sin so that he says, what then three nine, what then are Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The pervasiveness of sin, such as we have these debased minds and these lusts of the heart, is the symptom, not the cause. It is 
the sign that God is is handing us over, that God is part of the way that he exercises wrath is is this letting go to let us in our sinfulness get what we truly want so that that in hopes that we might see how bad we really are. God lets us go, as it were, when we reject him. Part of the God's wrath coming is in him allowing humans to get what they want. This handing over is an act of, of judgment. But, but notice as the passage unfolds, these sins and descriptors that we have are, are the symptoms. What does it look like when man rejects God and, and follows into idolatry and, and wants nothing to do with the true worship of God? What will unfold all around us because of that? Now, none of these sins are beyond the grace of God, but we do need to understand how we got to these things. So our second point this morning, that was just trying to to catch us up in the flow of the passage. The second point is when God is rejected, God hands us over to dishonorable passions. One of the things that God does is allow people to get what they want, and that is passions that do not honor God. So these passions are dishonorable. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. This connects us back to to verse 24. If you look in our passage, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And we talked about last week how you'll remember when Israel was at Mount Sinai and she she makes this golden calf. And what does she do? She goes out and worships it. And then they go out in the morning and they engage in sexual immorality with one another. God allows people to to engage in these lusts and desires for sin that are in their heart because it it shows us just how far we go in our rebellion against God. And we sometimes fail to recognize in each one of our lives the sinfulness of sin. Just how bad it is. Just how far uh, we wander from God in our sins. These things in our passage, they're not right. They're, they're shameful. They're not as God intended. The practice of them does not honor God. And it's, it's not an honorable use of our bodies. It's not what God intended them to be used for. So moving right along, we want to just be as clear as we can in this passage. Homosexual activity is sinful. And I'm not saying this because I want to single out one sin and harp on one over all the others. It's it's how the passage unfolds and and we need to hear from God on this issue. Particularly in today's day and age where we have all sorts of of wrong thinking on sexual ethics. We just need to go back to the word of God and and in graciousness and humility stand and say what does God's word say verse 26 for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Notice First, the types of relationships here. It's women with women and men with men. One of the common explanations of this passage uh, today that you will hear people say is this isn't talking about loving homosexual relationships. In fact, you'll hear people say this was talking about abusive homosexual relationships, things like cult prostitution or things that involved Masters taking their slaves. That isn't Paul's point here. Paul's point is very specific. That whenever there is a a switching of what should be union of woman and man or man and woman to become woman and woman and man and man, there's a, a going against nature. There's a going against the way that God created us. 
It, it flows out of the idolatry that we have in our hearts. We reject God as creator. And so we reject the, the created order that God has made. We reject biological gender or we reject normal uh, biological uh, sex acts that are appropriate. What is dishonorable is the passion here, the act of man with man and woman with woman. There is no context in this passage where any of these relationships are holy or honorable because they are contrary to the nature and the created order. So second, Paul describes women. They exchange natural relations for those contrary to nature. So God made the human body in a specific way. He designed that only that sexuality should be practiced only between opposite sexes and only when there is a union in marriage, when there is a covenant union that goes with the biological union. Genesis chapter two, verse 24 and 25. Therefore. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here the union, because there is a union in marriage and there is a union of differing biological sexes, just a natural coming together in the way that God created them. The union is honorable. It is, it is not shameful. It is by God's design, nature testifies to the order of the biological sexes. Not only is it true that only a male and a female can procreate, but, but even, and I don't want to get graphic here, but even as God designed the bodies, he designed the male and the female so that they can come together. The greatness of the marriage union is that two people that are, that are biologically different that are mentally different, that are emotionally different, come together in one flesh. They have a union that that God created these things to be good when they have this covenant union. By the way, Genesis would rule out any kind of uh, premarital sex or engaging in sex outside of uh, the union of man and woman in marriage. Just as idolatry exchanges the truth of God for a lie or or takes the the glory of God that we have been shown and exchanges it for the glory of the created thing. So in homosexual union, one exchanges what they were created for, the way God created things for a way that seems right in our own eyes. Paul moves on to describe then men with men. They too, he said, give up, quote, natural relations with women. They go and commit what Paul describes as shameful acts. These things are wrong because they're not the way that God intended for his creation to live, both in fellowship with him. Remember, this passage flows out of idolatry and also in fellowship with each other, male and female. How do we then respond to this? I've tried to lay out to you what Scripture says clearly in this passage, but but this is such, let's be honest, this is such a hot-button issue in our culture. And, And unfortunately, we live in such a day and age where you can hardly say anything about it without being guaranteed to offend somebody. I'm not intentionally trying to offend anyone today. I'm trying to stand and say, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what God would have us here. So I'm going to lay out for us actually six responses. And I, and I hope you'll see these kind of build on one another in a way. How do we respond to the culture, to the prevalence of it, to what is going on, all of those things? And, and invariably, I can't say everything that there is to be said on this topic. First, this morning. We have to let the Bible define what is good, proper, and honorable. We have to start with Scripture. We have to be like like Martin Luther and say, this is where I stand. 
And unless you can show me in the Bible, unless I am convinced from Scripture alone, I cannot change my position. The Bible is really clear here. There is no wiggle room, if I can put it that way. These things are sin, and we are not to engage in them. We are not to to practice them. There are today in our culture many people who want to affirm Christianity to say they believe in the Lord Jesus and affirm homosexual practice. Uh, There was one couple recently in ministry. They have kind of a, uh, in some circles, a well-known ministry. and, And they said this, we both believe, husband and wife, we both believe a same-sex marriage, as long as it is monogamous commitment, can be holy before God. The Bible doesn't give us that option. Because God, the Holy One, is the one who defines holiness. And God is not trying to be mean and nasty. God is not a bigot. But he has created his his creation in such a way, just as he himself deserves glory and we reject it. He's created his creation in a certain way. And we are the ones that have rejected his design. We need to stand on the word of God. That should be basic Christianity 101. That should be if you're a Protestant, anybody who's a heir of Martin Luther, that should be. Uh, common sense. We, we start with the Bible. Only this is the word of God. Everything that we, we believe and live and, and do needs to be in obedience to this. But, but when it comes to this issue, sometimes we forget it. We certainly want to be compassionate, kind, and loving people. But it's not compassionate and kind to change the truth. We need to be loving towards the people, but firm on the truth, right? So, second, we do have to tell the truth on this matter. There is no dodge here. We can't wiggle with Scripture, finagle it, twist it to say what we want it to say. We have to tell the truth. Yeah, this is what the Bible says. And I need to be a person who submits myself to God. And in submitting myself to God, there are always going to be things in the word of God that that me in and of myself, I don't like. There are verses in Scripture that, that tell me to do things that if I had my way, I wouldn't do them. But being a Christian is about submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his word. There's a, a, a lady by the name of Rosario Butterfield. She was, in the 90s, a lesbian tenured professor in English literature who specialized in queer theory and culture. Uh, she will tell you that she is, was, in her academic field, one of the driving forces, not the only one, but one of them, in the whole field of L. BGTQ studies, rationalizing these things, explaining these things, um, approving of these things. And she talks about in the late 90s when she was struggling with the claims of Christ. She says, I would have loved to hear, and I'm paraphrasing here, she would have, she says, I would have loved to hear now, quote, that I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. That I can flourish both in tenured academic discipline, which was queer theory, English literature and culture, and in my church. But then she states these words, in other words, these words that, that these relationships can be holy. She's specifically referencing that. She said, these words would have put a millstone around my neck. She's saying, not telling me the truth would have kept me from God. I would still be dead in my sins, condemned, going to hell. She makes it really clear that first she was saved out of her unbelief. And out of that, the consequences of of God cleansing her and cleaning her put demands on her life. It's a wonderful testimony. You can find some of her stuff online. She's also written a biography about it. But the point is She had people in her life 
that both loved her, but also told her the truth. And she became a Christian because of it. Third, we need to treat all people, however, with dignity and respect. So we tell the truth. We stand on what the word of God says, but we still need to treat everyone, all people, with dignity and respect. So on the one hand, some people think that Christians are hateful and bigots because we think homosexual acts are sinful. Some people were just, no matter how nice we try to be, no matter how loving, they're always going to disagree with us. But on the other hand, there are people out there claiming to be Christians that, let's just be frank, they can be very hateful. That is not the way that we are to go. We stand on the Word of God. We need to tell people what sin is. And of course, all sin, my sin included is an offense against God. But God I was still a sinner. And Christ died for me. I need to love people even when they are in sin. Every human being is still an image bearer of God. Even in our sinfulness and all the corruption that that, that brings, we still bear aspects of the image of God that includes human dignity. So, if someone calls us a bigot or hateful when we are generally being kind to them, Romans 12.14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. If someone considers us their enemy because we take a stand on biblical values, Romans 12, 17 and 18 says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 12, 20 and 21. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Two examples here. Remember when Jesus talked to the woman at the well? He didn't shy away from talking about her sin. You know, she said, I'm not married and said, you're right. You've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. And right away, you know, she knew that that was wrong and and the implications of what he's saying. He's not approving of that lifestyle. At the same time, he engaged her. He talked with her. He, he, He spoke to her kindly. He one of the things that was that was shocking to her that here she is a Samaritan and he's willing to ask for a cup of water from her that. That's not demeaning as we might think that he's asking her to to somehow um, be a servant or something. It, It actually, to say, I'd be willing to accept a cup of water from you is a way of saying you're you're a human being. Just because you hand me the water, just because you have sin in your life doesn't mean that water you handed me is is somehow polluted and I need to dump it on the ground and and turn my back and not talk to you at all. Second example, again, to return to the story of Rosaria Butterfield, when she was coming to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only did she have people telling her the truth in her life, she had a pastor and his wife who were sitting down with her and eating and talking about her with these things, but also building a relationship with her, showing her genuine kindness and love. And, and she is quite blunt that we need to balance both the telling of the truth, which she says sometimes we don't do very well, also with the loving of the people in real tangible ways, which she says we also as Christians don't always do very well. The fourth thing we want to say is homosexuality, particularly in this passage, is not the worst sin. Sometimes we in our culture, in our Christian culture, exalt and lift up this sin as it's somehow worse than all the others. What is the worst sin in this passage is rejecting God and turning to idolatry, suppressing the truth, which is right in front of us. These other sins really are just the consequences of 
of the key sin, which is rebelling against God, knowing God, seeing evidence of him everywhere, and then saying, I don't want that. And these other sins flow from as effects, as as symptoms to the disease. The disease is rebellion against God. Homosexuality is not the worst sin. And in fact, homosexuality, like every other sin, can be forgiven by God. Fifth, I want to say this, and this is to try to speak a little bit to our culture. Sexuality is not a person's identity. Our modern culture, and I'm really summarizing a lot of discussion here, but our modern culture has so focused in on sexual things that that becomes fundamental to your identity. So that, so much so, so that if you say that certain behaviors are wrong, if you say that certain things should not be done, the person has so absorbed those as part of their identity, they assume you automatically hate not only what they're doing, but who they are at the core of their being. A biblical worldview, even a biblical worldview of sexuality, does not make and have my identity wrapped up in sexuality. Sex is a gift that God has given us to enjoy in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. It is not the sum total of who I am. In a a biblical worldview, my identity is either in Adam, who I am, each one of us, who we are in our sin, or when I come to Christ, my identity, the, the sum total of who I am, is found in Jesus. We are either trapped in our sin, dead in sinfulness, rebelling against God, following the lusts of our heart in idolatry, whatever those lusts might be, or we are in Christ. Apart from Christ, we're all trapped in sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we are all dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, we, you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature like the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I am either dead in my sins or I am alive in Christ. And when I am dead in my sins, I have all manner of lusts and desires. My sins are no better than anyone else's sins. And we need to remind ourselves in that. Engaging in these desires then entails acting out in our sin. Sin entails replacing God with other things. It it flows from this idolatry principle that Paul is, is laying out for us. And when I define myself, my values, my identities with anything other than God and Jesus Christ, ultimately, the biggest problem here is idolatry and my rebellion against God. I am taking who God created me to be in goodness and holiness and swapping it. For a lie, for my sins, for what I want. For every person, for each and every person, our only hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The deceptiveness of sin is it tells us that the things that we want, the things that we find pleasurable, are good for us. That's true of any sin. That it We wouldn't sin, in a sense, if we didn't, in our sinfulness, at some point, find it enjoyable. And that's the problem with sin. Again, quoting Rosario Butterfield, she says, Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely. Did my lesbian reflect who I am, which is what I believed in 1999? Or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? 
I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, but stands against the word of God, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. Our sin natures deceive us. Sin's deception isn't just out there. It's also deep in the caverns of our hearts. Six, we can be washed and cleansed from all sin. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Look at the list of sins here. And Paul says, such were some of you. Meaning, there are believers that he's talking to. And he's saying, we were trapped in these sins. Including homosexuality. Including adultery. Including being a thief or a drunkard or greedy or sexual immorality. There is no sin that the Lord cannot forgive in this list. And in the other lists of sin in Scripture, that is what the grace of God is about. And we aren't laying out certain sins as unforgivable or or worse than others. We need to look at our own hearts and say, what are the sins that I have? And oh, how awful they are. And look at what the Lord has done. I didn't deserve this forgiveness. But God in his graciousness gave it to me. I saw a video clip where Al Mohler, he's um, the head of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, he stood up on the floor of, of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he gave a plea, but also kind of a, a point of repentance to say, we have not done a good job reaching out to people who engage in homosexual lifestyles. And one man stood up and kind of took offense with it. And, and Al Mohler basically read him these verses and said, until we can say this about our church, that there are people that have come out of these things and been saved, have we really showed them love and brought the gospel to them? And that needs to be a work of God as well. We can't save anybody. But the point is this. You wouldn't look at a thief and say, I can't share the gospel with him because look how awful his sin is. You wouldn't look at a greedy person or a drunkard and say, I'm not going to give them Jesus because they might spit in my face. In the same way, don't look at people trapped in sexual immorality, homosexuality, adultery, whatever it might be, and say, I'm not going to try to share the gospel with them. God can't save them from that. That's a really bad sin. We need to be loving, but we also need to tell the truth. That brings us to our third point this morning. When God is rejected, we become filled with all manner of unrighteousness. If we really understand where this passage is going, it's not about singling out one sin, but saying, look how bad sins get when we rebel against God. Look at verse uh, 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, this goes all the way back to this idolatry theme that we've had in verses 18 to 22. Verse 21, for all they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge him. In other words, they had the knowledge of God, but they rejected it and God gave them up. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. It is not simply focusing on homosexuality as the culmination of sin, but it's focusing on idolatry. And look at all the sins that come from that. 
God gives them up to the debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then Paul gives this laundry list of sins. We are filled with these things. Why? Because we've rejected God. This is who we are in our sins. This is who we are apart from Christ. Look at this. Filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. My wife teased me that I should emphasize that one. But, but the point is, as you look at some of these things, sometimes we want to rank these things. Oh, you know, disobedience to parents, you know, not a big deal. Hey, okay, so I gossiped a little bit. You know, I, I was just spreading the news. At least I'm not sexually immoral. At least I'm not an adulterer. Okay, so I lost my temper and had some malice. Or I coveted something my neighbor had. Thank goodness that's not a big deal. It's not like that sin of homosexuality. But that's exactly what the Bible doesn't let us do. That all of these sins are wrapped up in rebellion against God. When I take the glory of God that I'm supposed to worship and give praise to and I swap it out for idols, what begins to fill me? What drives me? How do I live my life? It's this full manner of sins. And it does no good to say, well, I don't hate God, but I gossip. Or I'm not malicious, but I covet. Or I've never killed anyone, but I hate my parents. All of these sins are one big bundle of the mess that we find ourselves in when we reject God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 reminds us that we are so twisted in our sins. We think that the ways that we live are good when they are foolish. It says this, Among men we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. My sin deserves death. I am not better than anyone else because I'm a Christian. I've been washed in the blood, cleansed. It's Jesus Christ who made the difference in me. It's not that I was different first. And so we see in verse 32 of our passage, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Think about this dynamic here. Not only do we exchange the truth of God for a lie, because we are made in the image of God, there is a part of us somewhere deep down, even with all of the sin that we have, We know better. Sometimes it's just natural human conviction. Sometimes it's guilty feelings that we suppress. But somewhere inside everyone, no matter how much they deny it or suppress it, because you are made in the image of God, you know that sin is sin. You might reject it. You might shove it down, suppress it, not acknowledge it. But somewhere you're denying who God has created you to be. You know that sin deserves death. And that's part of you know, why we share the word of God and we say, Scripture says the wages are sin or is death. We are looking for the Holy Spirit to come upon that person and open their eyes and show them the truth that has been right in front of them all along. That these sins deserve death. And then to, to tell them that Jesus is the Savior from these things. But notice what these people do. Not only do they do them, but they give approval of those who practice them. I think 
That describes our current culture today to a T. You can look out over any area of society and you find not only people practicing these sins, this whole list of them, but especially, I think, what is horrendous is people who don't do them, but approve those who do, who give cover for it, who maybe are therapists and say it's okay, it's right, it's good. Or maybe they're tenured academic professors and they come up with legal explanations or psychological explanations or or any kind of rationale that says, I may not do this, but I'm going to defend and approve and even (laughs) applaud those who do. That's how far we go in our rebellion against God. There will be people on the day of judgment who didn't maybe engage in particular sins, but they will be guilty of standing on the sidelines and approving and applauding those who did. You and I as well. We need to be extremely careful that we don't approve and applaud things that are sinful. And even sometimes in the church, it can be those those hidden sins, you know, not the big ones, but the small ones that we let go and we applaud gossip or anger or malice or envy or coveting or divisions and dissensions, which Paul describes as works of the flesh. Let's end with this. The grace of God can save the hardest sinner. I'm just going to read Ephesians chapter 2 to us. But you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in the trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. If you walk away from this message today and say all pastor did was harp on this sin or that sin, you've missed the point. We were dead in our sins. And God made us alive. God, by His great mercy, made us alive forgave my sins. We are going to take communion today. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you understand you and I are sinners? Dead in our sins. We didn't want God. And we lived in this rebellion. And you know what's worse? We enjoyed it. My sin, I loved it. And God could have sent me to hell. And He should have. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us 
alive together with Christ. I don't deserve grace because I'm a sinner and I exchanged the glory of God for idols, for self-righteousness, for all kinds of lusts. And God made me alive And Jesus Christ has saved us by grace alone. Let's pray. Our great and mighty God, we gather now in the coming moments to take communion. And we are reminded of our own sin our own unrighteousness that filled us with every manner of unrighteousness, all kinds of perversity and sin dwelling in us. And Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sin, to wash me when I didn't deserve it, to cleanse me when I shouldn't have it. Lord, if there are any here today that have never received the Lord Jesus as their Savior, have never been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, I plead with you that they would cry out to you and ask for the forgiveness of sins, that you would lay a burden on their heart, that they might see who they are and see what they need in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, for those of us that have experienced this forgiveness, let us not be haughty. Let us not be prideful and stuck up. But that we are beggars of grace as well, that we had nothing to bring before you. And you and your great love. In the very hours and days and moments when we were rebelling against you, slapping you in the face, spitting and scoffing at the glory of God and the truth you had revealed. You and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. Your grace has done it all. Tis mine but to believe. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me. I pray that as we partake of the communion, that you would remind us of the preciousness of grace. That we all, in our own ways, struggle with sin and need to come before the cross regularly to walk in your ways, to be washed anew by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.